0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And, of course, I'm Al Warren. And sitting on the other side of the bench is David <laughs> North Martino. Oh my, my, my real name this time. Yeah, serial killer name. Excellent. We're, 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 we're talking thriller murder today, so we have to we have to use the serial killer name. We can't use Ah perfect. Can't use your like rose, you know, name. <laughs> yeah, it's just too, none of that too soft. This is a <laughs> soft show. That's right. Yeah. So interesting week. So we are in December. Yep. And you see, hey you see the blizzard we had here? I did not. Wow. Oh, no, I did. I, saw, I actually did. I did see some of your pictures that you put yeah. up. Yeah. Great. The opposite from the fires, eh? Yeah. <laughs> fires in August <laughs> and a blizzard in December.
1: I'm very perfect. You know,
0: people going, whoop, prefer December. Yeah, I do, too. I prefer <laughs> this than the fires, really. Oh, man. But that's okay. I mean, that's the extreme beauty, right? Yeah. It's kind of like my life. It's either on fire <laughs> or it's ice cold. <laughs> Anyway, our guest is uh, standing by. We're going to talk about his book, House on Fire, a novel. It's a Nick Heller novel, and it's book four. And let's welcome to the show, Joseph Finder. Hi, nice to be here. Why well, you, you say that now. We'll, see, in, <laughs> we'll <laughs> see. We'll see in time here, maybe in an hour. If I don't have you hung up by then, you'll see what goes on. No, actually, this is interesting. So you're seeing, I I look at this, and and you're doing really well in the writing world. I mean, the New York Times best-selling author, and you're kind of the editor's pick with this book, and things are going well for you. So um, was this kind of like, well, I guess it would be the plan, but was this something that you thought when you first started writing was going to happen?
1: Um. I wanted to, from when I started, I wanted to be able to make a living as a writer and not struggle at it. And that was a big concern of mine. Um, I, was, we were, I was raised in a house five kids where, where my parents did not have a lot of money. That was always a concern. And when they heard me tell them that I wanted to become a writer, <laughs> that said, <laughs> they tried to talk me out of it my grandfather said get a real job <laughs> well yeah
0: no i mean yeah i understand i told my dad when i was six i want to be a dj a disc and he said what's that and i said a disc jockey and he said you don't know anything about horses <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understand that feeling where they're thinking well get out and work a job you know but- right how did you how did you overcome that? That must have been tough, but because you're, you're you're secretly kind of going, well, this is what I want to do, and everybody in the family is kind
1: of going, well, well, that's nice, but you got to pay yeah. for the mortgage, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. And I, I spent like three years working on a book, and um, when I ended up selling it, I ended up selling it for for a, a, a large amount of money um, for that in the next book. And that was actually more, I made more in one year than my father had made in his career. And, uh, dad was at that point persuaded that I wasn't so, you know, <laughs> wasn't so out of, out of touch with reality.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good
1: thing. But,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah but then you see now, I, I don't know about you, but that was your first book you said that you sold. Um, First novel, really. First novel, and, and yeah, I know I wrote a, I
1: wrote a nonfiction book, the, oh, first, and nobody bought it. Nobody bought it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>
0: <laughs> you should have wrote it now, right? All this true crime <laughs> stuff going on right now, you know? right? Uh, but then uh, that, that must have been a great um, amount of pressure, you know. My my first when I did a, a book for a publisher who asked me to do one, and it sold a ton, and it did really well. I felt a great deal of pressure. To, that means I'm supposed to be a writer yeah, to follow up. Nice. All of a sudden, everybody's looking at you and going, well, what's he going to do next? And it's like, well, exactly. I, can't, I can't write. You know, I started going through all of this self-doubt and imposter feeling and all this, yeah. know, and yeah. all that. So how, do, how does that go for you? I mean, I, I probably, I, I'm guessing, didn't make that kind of money that you were talking about on that book. So what, what kind of pressure does that put on a person?
1: Yeah, well, you know, all of a sudden people are asking, what's the next thing? What's your next book? And I hadn't quite figured out my next book. And, but it became clear to me that if I kept doing it, I could make a living at it. Um, but, you know, the, nobody tells you what kind of books to write. I knew I wanted to write. I loved, for example, I loved a range of thriller writers. I loved Robert Ludlum and I loved John Le Carré. They're both very different. You know, I love Nelson DeMille and I love Ken Follett, who did Eye of a Needle. And um, uh, so I read a lot of books and took notes. I sort of analyzed them. I kind of subjected them to CAT scans uh, and analyzed how they worked and... Began to come up with an outline. That was how I wrote my first book. Um, the second one, I was a little frozen. I was sort of concerned that I, I mean, I wanted it to be as successful as my first novel. Um, I didn't know if it would be. Uh, I knew that I was putting my Russian knowledge into my books, which was a good thing. Um, I was actually. I was trained as, as what they call a Kremlinologist. I was trained to analyze Russian and Soviet affairs. And this was at the tail end of the Cold War. So my first novel became a story of the crumbling of the Soviet Union and what happened to us, the U.S., in the process. Um, so I eventually was able to come up with an idea for my second book, uh, But it was very different from my first one. You know, my um, first novel was called The Moscow Club, and it was about a a coup in the Kremlin in which Americans are involved. And my second one was about a guy who knew how to read minds, who actually um, had become, had gone through the CIA project, which had activated something in his brain that enabled him to listen to thoughts. And that could not have been farther from the last from the book before. It was a really different kind of book. It sold okay, but it was sort of my way of saying, I'm not going to be tied down to only one kind of thriller. There are a lot of thrillers out there, and I want to sort of write a thriller that appealed to a large audience but that also felt original. So I'm sorry, I'm just rambling here. but um,
0: That's what we are. We're the rambling station. <laughs> so that, 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 that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of the Soviet Union, you mentioned on your Facebook page that you did research there. Yes. And uh, they wouldn't let you go back into the country and then you were
1: able to get back in. Are you
0: willing to talk about any of that?
1: Yeah, a little bit. Uh, but I do have to be careful <laughs> about that. Um, okay. The Russians... Um, did not want me back after I wrote my first novel. They did not want me back in. And they were, con- they were convinced that I had really good contacts in the CIA, and that was true. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I, I, I guess I was called, yes, that's right, I was called in my hotel room by this guy who was actually employed by the KGB, who told me that the Russians, that I was out there doing interviews and doing research in Moscow, and the Russians didn't believe in that. And they wanted, he suggested, that I go before I would get arrested. So I sort of thought that that was it. I would never get back into Russia again. But because of a bureaucratic screw-up, they spelled my name wrong, and I got back into Russia the next, the next research trip. So, uh, and I had to be really careful. I know I was followed around. I know they, bug- they bugged my hotel room. That's what they did to foreigners, pretty much. Mm. So, uh, it was a little nerve-wracking being there, knowing that the KGB knew who I was. I think they figured it out after I arrived. Um, but, you know, I did, I'll tell you a, a story I don't talk about very much. Um, I, I had an idea for my third novel um, about the R- Russian organized crime, the Russian mafia. And um, I got in touch with a Soviet emigre who had a friend who was in one of these mafia groups. And this guy agreed to take me to a meeting of, this, of his organization and, uh, so I could write about it in Moscow. And I was nervous as hell. Um, and I was, I was told to meet at this particular location in Moscow at midnight. And that's when the meeting would take place. And uh, I then got a phone call at my hotel room from this guy who was supposed to meet me who said that the KGB had found out that I was in Moscow, they were convinced I worked for the CIA and if I was to go to this meeting I might well be killed. And I just thought you know it's not worth it. So Mm. I actually left Moscow the next day and it was a long time before I came back. I just figured, you know, there's, there's only so far I needed to go to do my research. I didn't need to get, need to get myself killed in the process.
0: No, you, you have to be careful. You don't want to be caught, take, you know, having, like, hookers pee on you or something. Thank <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God, you know, it could ruin your run for president or whatever. If you, to, <laughs> you know. But well, that's a different story. <laughs> no, that's a different story, and they yeah, do things like that. Yeah, right? well, yeah, I, I've heard this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but this must be kind of um, it, because it, you're, you're 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 you have a goal in mind. You're writing a book, and you're, you're yep. covering something that's happened with spies in Russia, and and you know you've got all these ideas in your head, so you're doing research and you're in the country and stuff like that. Yeah. But but does that sort of um, outside fear Kind of seep into you somehow because I, I would imagine uh, I'd be a little bit paranoid no. that no. you know that people are watching you and they know you know they are there and all this stuff's going on wouldn't yeah. I I think I would be a little bit like on edge so I don't know wouldn't that kind of interfere in your writing process or can you just sit through that and it, doesn't it matter?
1: actually it, that I absolutely felt that way I was kind of paranoid I was afraid. They get into my hotel room and find my computer and that kind of thing, and I um, used that paranoia in writing the book, so that I was able. I knew what it felt like to be pursued in Moscow by government intelligence sources, forces really, uh, and I was able to sort of channel that fright that I had into the suspense of the book. So it actually turned out to be a good thing. Good well, for my book. Good for my yeah. Life.
0: <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I mean, but it's kind of crazy because it's the kind of thing that you know you're you're doing your, every day you're doing going about your job and also on the news you hear about two people that were arrested for being a spy you know and and, yeah. and you know for 10 years and
1: they come back looking 90 pounds and beat up <laughs> yeah, in fact you know my fear was not being killed my fear was that they would simply arrest me you know on some trumped up charge and put me in a prison in moscow and I would be stuck there for years, and that—that's a serious fear. Yeah, I'd,
0: I'd, yeah, yeah. I'd be, I'd be worried. That's what I would be worried about too. I think being killed instantly would probably be better because it's all over then.
1: It's all over. It,
0: yeah. because you imagine 10, 20 years in one of those holes, getting treated like garbage, and
1: yeah, and I. Yeah. Um, Scout prison does not y- sound like fun.
0: No, <laughs> no, it's up there with all the. I mean, just say no. Um, right. But I, anyway. So I think that would be very interesting um, in that way. But what, what was what, what? What? Where did the idea come from for you? So you're sitting there, and how did you come up with the idea of let's get into uh, Moscow and let's write about this sort of situation um, when there's uh, when there's so much, you know, this sort of political stuff going on all the time. It yeah. seems like but, you know the Cold War ended, but sure, but there's still a lot of this. Stuff between these countries, you know, China, Russia, U.S., all the stuff.
1: You know, it doesn't yeah. really end.
0: Right. So, so what is know, it that, Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And the um, the feeling in the U.S. was the Cold War is over. That's the end of the spy game. What are writers like John Le Carre going to do now? And I was sitting there thinking, it's not over. The spy stuff continues. The spy versus spy stuff. You know, and I, uh, um, I was convinced that I could write something. I think I'd read a novel by Frederick Forsyth, who wrote *The Day of the Jackal*, and um, it was set partly in Moscow. And I read this, and I just thought, you know, I can do the same thing. Um, I'd studied Russia. I knew Russian. Um, I could set some scenes in Moscow and make them feel real, make them feel authentic. Uh, so I think I think it was reading Frederick Forsyth that got me excited about the possibility of my doing something like that, a thriller like that. Hmm. So um, the big question: uh, Jack Reacher or Nick Keller? <laughs> oh well, I mean, I think, I think Lee Child said something like. Um, uh, my money's on Reacher, but it would be tough. Uh, my feeling is that they would be so intimidating to one another, they'd become friends. Uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, Nick Heller, you know, is not just like Jack Reacher. Jack, he's very different. He lives in Boston. He's got a company. He does espionage work for pay. Um, unlike Jack Reacher who sort of moves around an itinerant from city to city, town to town, and finds someone and helps them out. And that's sort of that's the basic pattern of the Jack Reacher novels, which I like a lot. But I wanted to make Nick different. I wanted to make him, I wanted to give him a home, you know, give him a company, give him a sort of place to land and uh, and I wanted him to be, yeah, he's ex-military the way Jack Reacher is, but I wanted him to be really savvy in terms of the business world. So Nick used to work in, the, in, in corporate America at a high level, uh, and he uh, uh, now is on his own, but he has that base of knowledge. He's able to uh, penetrate corporations because he knows how they work. He can talk the talk. He can dress the right way. Uh, he can blend in. He can be, as I say in one of my books, you know, he he can go to a board meeting as easily as he goes to uh, an alley to beat somebody up. So I wanted him to have this kind of savviness that Jack Reacher doesn't have. I wanted him to be sort of. I wanted him to be significantly different enough. Well well who is um
0: Nick Keller to you? Like how, how do how do we compare that character to you? Or is is there a lot of you in him?
1: Yeah, I mean it's wish fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> what I, you wish you could be. It's what I wish I could be, yeah. He uh I mean Nick Nick uh knows how to beat people up, but he also knows how to how to entrap people. He sort of knows He's, sort of, he, he's the guy who has the sort of remark that I wish I had come up with. You know, I leave a party, and I just sort of think, shoot, why did I say that? Nick will have thought of it, you know? So I sort of, I make Nick the kind of guy who actually I would, I wish I could be like. So, yeah, there's, is... Is Nick Heller partly Joseph Fender? Sure, he is. Uh, But he is more of a wish-fulfillment character than a uh, representation of me. You know, I'm just a a guy who uh, went to grad school and studied Russian. You know, I don't, um, I'm not, I am not that, I'm not like Nick Heller. Nick is much better than I
0: you began uh, your career for a long time writing standalone novels yeah, and I was wondering um, uh, you know until you began the Nick Keller series around like 2010 yeah um, is there what made you decide to uh to to write a series
1: character yeah so i got I started getting emails after I started hitting the the New york Times bestseller list with a book paranoia and then Company man and i um Started getting emails from readers who would say, "Are you going to bring back Adam from Paranoia? You know, are you going to bring back um, whoever from whichever book they just read?" And I realized that people love to bond with characters and stay with them. And um, so there was a lot of emails like that. And I talked to my publisher, and they thought I should do the same thing. And my first response was but I don't want to do a character like everybody else. Um, I most of all was influenced by a writer who's not that well known anymore. named John D. McDonald, hmm. John D. McDonald's books I loved and his, he had a character in there, Travis McGee who was hmm. smart, savvy, funny. Uh, and I wanted to do someone like that. So I said to my publisher, I will try writing a book with a, with a character who I am inventing to, to sort of go the long term. You know, in a standalone, the, 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 the hero of a standalone is very different from the hero of a series novel. In a standalone, the hero goes through all kinds of stuff and his life is turned upside down. Well, you can't do that to a series character every book. That's just not plausible. So a series character has got to... He has stuff in his background, (laughs) family stuff. Um, He's got connections like that. But I did not want to age him. I didn't want to sort of encumber him with a wife and kids. I wanted him to be on his own. So... He's a very different kind of character than my standalone characters are. I was, you know, I was, I was nervous about trying a standalone, excuse me, a series. Um, but what I learned is that once I had created Nick Heller, I knew how to, what his life was like. I knew what he was like when I started the next book. I sort of, Nick was like an old friend. So it's easier, in some ways, to write a series novel than it is to write a standalone.
0: Well, would each would each book in this series stand alone in itself? But
1: each of the uh, Nick Heller books, yeah, yeah. I mean, I this was advice I took from my friendly child, who said, "Make sure remember that people are not going to you're going to start adding readers as you go along, and you're going to find readers." who are going to say, wait a second, Nick Heller book three, I can't read this, I've got to start with Nick Heller book one. So the way I set up my books is that you can read any one of the Nick Hellers, you're introduced to him, uh, and you don't need to read them in any kind of an order. So that's my way of sort of bringing readers in who are intrigued by Nick Heller, but sort of think, oh, no, I've got to read from book one. You don't actually have to read from book one. Situations that you put them in,
0: and as the story develops, um, how do you know that it's, that it's good? And, and I don't, how do I say this? Because someone like me, I don't write fiction. I don't know that I could. I don't know that it's in me. And, and it, you know, because it's, it's like writing a song or something. You can put down certain words, and it just sounds stupid. But other people like yourself can do it, and it
1: doesn't. Like, how Or how do you know when it doesn't? Well, um, don't forget that every writer starts out by being a reader. And I became a thriller author because I loved reading thrillers. So I have a pretty finely honed sense of what is exciting to a reader and what isn't. Um, so I think I just... I just think it's an instinct that I have, um, yet at the same time, you know, I'll give my book, my manuscripts to my brother, who's a professional editor, and have him read it and have him kick the tires, and I'll give it to my agent. So I usually, by the time the book is published, it's gone through three or four different readers. So uh, if if I'm wrong and what I'm writing is not exciting, doesn't come off the page, and in you know, full Technicolor. If that's the case, I know that my agent or my brother are going to tell me for sure. So I just mm. have basically, I have, I have good readers to double check on my own instinct. I wonder. So have you ever written something that you kind of hasn't passed the test? Were <laughs> sure, I have. I okay, have. Let's, let's see it. <laughs> <I have. laughs> no, no, I, um, I've written books that didn't quite work. Uh, and, you know, so what I do is I sort of start all over. I sort of take the criticisms that I get from my brother or my agent or whoever and rework the book entirely before I submit it to a publisher. It happens. It's the funniest thing. You know, I've written, I've published 17 novels by now. And you'd think I'd know how they work. But every time I start a novel, I feel like I'm doing it for the first time. It, it always feels new and a little scary to me. You know, So I, I, um, I will screw up occasionally, and that happens. And that's why I have my backup readers um, to make sure that I don't try to publish a book that's kind of messed up, a book that doesn't work.
0: Well, yeah. I, I, so, do you do, well? Do you have that kind of uh, disciplined writing approach? You can sit nine to five, five days a week, or you can plan a time. Okay, eleven to three. I'm going to write today. And can you just sit down and write?
1: Yeah. Um, I I actually work seven days a week. When I'm working on a book, I don't let a day go by without adding to it somehow. It doesn't mean I have to do a full day's work on a Sunday. But I will go into my office and work for at least an hour, a couple of hours. Um, So, yeah, I'm able to sit down and start writing. And um, I don't believe in writer's block. I, I like to say, and I've heard other writers say the same thing, that plumbers don't get plumber's block. You know, why should a writer get writer's block? Electricians don't get electrician's block. So if for some reason... It's not going well. If the words aren't flowing, I know there's some. I have to approach this like like a diagnostician and try to figure out what is it. Do I not know the world? Do I need to do more research? Do I need to work more on the on the plotting? You know, there's always a good reason why the words aren't flowing. So um, I don't believe in this kind of mythical mystical thing that that a writer can just suddenly stop writing uh if that happens to me i diagnose it and i fix it and i go back to writing
0: yeah if your plumber doesn't work then you gotta get him to work <laughs> right they just you know yeah. you pick yeah. him in the butt and say get this where i can't well that you know and i i tie this to the when you when you say that you know it, you can just sort of sit there and go but when you're in moscow and you've got that stress (laughs) around you you sort of absorbed it and put it into your into your book maybe your characters or story but what about when it's something that um isn't really in your control because you you chose to go to moscow let's say and you're kind of choosing this field but let's say we can take the pandemic for instance so the last couple of years so you're kind of sitting more at home or you're in more of a certain location where you're not moving a lot but when there's that outside stress and something as big as this, like because um, we don't really know the outcome, you're sitting there and you hear about all this, the people dying and the pandemic and all this stuff's going on. We don't know where it's going to go. Right. So when it's an unresolved sort of fear, because this is what I get, a lot of the writers we've talked to have said, well, I was unable to write. I was just so, so caught up in it, and I and I couldn't do anything and we had others that said oh no i just jumped right into it it's an escape writing and all this stuff yeah. so where where are you putting yourself in that
1: yeah that's a, that's interesting because there are two very different ways of approaching this um i found it hard to write the first few months of the pandemic um and then i realized as you just said that I was basically doing something that was an escape from the pandemic. I was able to go to my office and be somewhere else for six hours. And that became really appealing to me. I knew, I mean, people would say to me, so are you going to write a book about a pandemic? or Are you going to write a book that is set in during a pandemic? And I just said, that's the last thing I want to do. I want to do something that's an escape from the pandemic, escape from that, from the difficulties of regular life. Uh, so that's what I've been doing is, I'm ignoring the pandemic as if it didn't happen. My new book is, is um, set uh, in 19, 2019 rather, right before the pandemic, before the world changed. So, you know, I'm able to incorporate the stress of the world into my books in terms of the feeling of anxiety and suspense that I want the readers to feel. Um, but if it's too much, if there's too much of that kind of anxiety in the real world, it's really hard to write.
0: When you're writing, do you have um, an inner monologue? Can you hear characters? Or
1: are you translating images and in, into prose? Or do you work some other way? No, I do. I sort of talk out loud. Out loud. It, uh, it would, if anyone saw me doing that, doing that, it would think sort I'm of crazy, <laughs> or else I have a Bluetooth headpiece <laughs> in my ear. Um, but when it's really rolling, I'm talking it out. And um, when I then go to edit, I speak it aloud as well. I really talk the book um, aloud. And uh, uh, I think more or less, I everything that I publish has been spoken. It's the spoken word committed to, to writing. That's why when people say to me, um, "Is are audiobooks as legit?" You know, and my feeling is this is how it started. This is how story, storytelling started. With human beings, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, as people sitting around the fire, telling stories, scaring one another, talking about feats of great feats and how they would get themselves out of a difficult position. Uh, so, yeah, I I sort of make sure that they sound that the words sound right to my ear if spoken aloud. How do you describe your characters
0: like? Any of them, um, and I say this in general because there's a lot of authors that'll tell me that they, their um, their their characters are like children, or they're like family, or they, you know, they. I get all these different terms, and yeah. and and I kind of think, geez, you know, I've I've never, I've always been in the nonfiction world, so this is kind of because I don't get to choose my characters, you know, right. and I don't get to really choose a lot of their habits or behaviors. I try to learn them, but yeah. I I don't decide them. So um, you do. Um, So do you have that kind of relationship, or is it something different?
1: Well, I'm not one of these writers whose characters tell them what to do. Um, My characters do what I tell them to do. Uh, But when I am coming up with a character, I often do a lot of, I kind of do a background file on each one of them. I 'll talk about their their background where they grew up, what their parents was like, what their home life was like, what uh, what they were like going to school, what they did for a living, what kind of sense of humor they have or not um, so I sort of come up with a psychological profile of each of my characters so and once I've done that, I know that, that the story's going to work because the characters will work. I think if you don't do that if you if you don't think about how the character in the round as a 3D, 3D character, it's not persuasive to the reader. And I want to make it as my characters as vivid and real to the reader as possible.
0: I, when, I, when I look at this, you also do a series of short stories. I've done that, yeah. Um, now, how do you classify them? They're, they're kind of a dark fiction, so is that kind of a horror yeah, well,
1: um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I sort of try, try things in my stories that I wouldn't do in a whole novel. And they are kind of dark, and they are, they are meant to have a surprise twist at the end. And um, one of the books, one of the stories that I wrote is sort of would be ca- categorized as horror. That's true. Um, but most of them are thrillers uh, that sort of are about something that would only work for a short period of time, as opposed to a novel which has got to keep going for four or 500 pages. So it's, the stories are different. They're different kinds of stories that make a short story work. So you got
0: when you do a short story like that, you... you have a lot less detail about some of the characters is that yeah
1: kind of... yeah i mean i sort of do a mini profile of each of the characters in the short stories that i write um and i but i end up not using a lot of it because short story has to really kick into gear right away and uh people are not going to sort of sit through uh, 20 pages of throat clearing you know They want things to happen they want action they want something exciting to be happening uh so that's i mean that's basically how i approach it is that they are very different creatures my stories versus my novels well i wonder
0: too you know i'm i'm one of those uh weird guys i listen to the old suspense and and all these old uh detective and oh yeah and, and horror things like fear on four and all these things from the 30s 40s 50s and even 60s every night i'm listening to at least one and it's i i kind of put it in that that sort of frame so it's more about uh the the fear the fear or the horror is more about what could happen more the suspense than just gore did you ever
1: listen to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater? Yeah, actually, I'm going through that right now. <laughs> uh, I loved it. I just loved it. So my brother, I, I, I shared a bedroom with my two brothers. And my brothers and I would listen to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater with the lights off. Yeah. And I loved those stories. And I began to listen to some of the stories that, that um, came out in the 40s, 30s and 40s. Right. when you had to when there was no tv and you had to make it feel real to the character to the to the listener um, also my father when we would go to bed when we were kids when we were young he would tell us a story every night he'd make some story up and they were usually kind of ghost stories and uh, i think i absorbed that i sort of really was into that. And I did the same thing with my daughter. I t- I would make up stories at night. And I think this is one of the things that made me into a writer is the way my dad would tell us stories at night.
0: I think that's so, so cool. I'm so into that sort of they They, they were able to pull off so much um, they in, really the were. Story yeah. in a short time. They like they you could you could feel Everything that was going on, even the characters, it's, it's truly amazing how laying in the dark with my dog and within 10 minutes I already know how the character feels. Yeah. Like, like I, I I, know what they're going through. And that's truly amazing that they could pull that off when today you could watch TV or, you know, Netflix with all of the effects yep, and an hour into it you still don't care about
1: your character. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't think that, you know, radio is not that popular anymore. You know, this no. is sort of a, a real niche thing. Yeah. Um, so, well, I but I think I think that these radio shows were are more similar to the sort of writing that I'm doing, in either in my novels or in my short stories, than um, a show on that a, a limited series on Netflix, which has all the special effects and a lot of characters and all that kind of thing. So writing a story, reading a story is, I think, you make it, you cast the characters in your own mind. You know, you sort of, you you describe the scenery in your own head. You're imagining it. You're using all these muscles of imagination. And uh, we, there's something really, satisfying about that there's something very exciting about that which I think you get from reading a book and that you don't get from watching TV well you know speaking of other media you've had films made from your work uh,
0: what was your experience with that and uh, I know it's rare but did you have any involvement with the, with the films
1: so I've had so far two movies made um and they were really different experiences so my the first movie that was made Um, starred Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd, and it was a 20th Century Fox studio film, thriller, and um, I wanted to be, I wanted to, I sort of said to my agent that I wanted to have a cameo in the movie, (laughs) and my agent said, you know, it doesn't work that way. You're the writer in Hollywood. You're in the totem pole. You're beneath the surface, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, um, but I was I was invited to play a role, uh, a small role as an extra, in High Crimes, the movie with Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd, um, and I was not invited to do the same thing for Paranoia. It was a really very different set. They invited me to come and spend time on the set, which I did. It's sort of cool to watch how many people it takes to make a movie from a book that involved one person sitting alone in a room. It's kind of amazing. So they were really different experiences. I, I, I liked high crimes a lot more than I liked the movie Paranoia. Um, but in, in both cases, I adopted the, the philosophy that there's nothing the writer can do about it just go along if you're going to sell the rights to hollywood then that filmmaker owns the rights and is going to do what he or she wants to do and you have no right to complain about it so that's basically that's why i don't complain about i mean even though i didn't like paranoia very much (laughs) i don't i didn't get on a public uh you know soapbox, so to to speak, and criticize it, I sort of said to myself, all right, that was one person's interpretation of the book Paranoia. It's not what I would have done, Um, but all that counts is that it works as a movie, you know? And uh, so I I, um, I've learned to sort of be hands-off, really when it comes to TV and movies. I've got a number of projects that are in development in television as limited series, and um, one of them is my book, Company Man, which is being developed as a limited series by a really talented guy, and they have not sent me the script. I have no idea what they're doing. I have no idea if it's any good, um, but it'll probably end up being pretty good, and It had nothing to do with me. It's funny. you know. Yeah, I made up the story, but the movie is always going to be really different, or the TV show. It's always going to be different because they have to cut out characters. They have to shorten plot in some ways and sort Mm -hmm. of make things move very quickly. They make editing changes, and that's what you want them to do. You want them to make a good movie. Not a faithful movie, but a good movie.
0: Yeah, it's like a 12-inch re- remix. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that. Yeah, you know, you never know what's going to come out. You yeah. Um, and so now if, 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 if someone takes home your book, any one of them, they, they pick up one of your books, they read it, at the end of the book, other than the storyline itself, like, what, you know, the, the action and all that and the entertainment, do you ever have a subtext or is there something else that you want people to take away from the book?
1: Well, not really. I mean, I want, I want readers to be diverted so much that they can't stop turning the pages. That's really what I want. And if I've succeeded that, then I've succeeded in writing a thriller that works as an exciting book. Um, I don't usually have messages. I don't try to communicate things through subtext. I'm all about what's on the page and making it as exciting as possible but making it at the same time as realistic as possible making the characters feel real this is something that i've sort of learned a lot about as i've been as i've written 17 novels you know i sort of i'm i'm it's much easier for me to create full blood characters now than it was when i started out and it's you know you sort of hope that as you're writing, you're getting better and better. Not always the case. Um, but I sort of learn as I go along. And, uh, yeah, I think, I, I I think that, uh, that each one of my books has to work as a separate story, um, has to be exciting, and I want, basically, I want the reader to put it down at the end and look up and say, oh, my God, it's 3 in the morning, you know. Um, I want them to lose track of time. That's what I'm after, not sending a message. <laughs> yeah. It made me
0: stay up all night, and now I'm late for work. And <laughs> Yeah,
1: I want to make you late for work. <laughs>
0: That's the goal here, you That's know. my goal. And, you know, I was not only writing and having complete at 17 novels but as you get older and you live through life i mean because each thing that happens you must learn about human nature like you know pandemic and you look at the way people act and react to it and you look at the conspiracies and you look at all the uh, things going on and how people are behaving amongst i I don't know that you could just write that Mm -hmm. at will thinking oh this is how people would be until you've lived it. So it's something that comes with time as well, because if I would have wrote that 10 years ago, you, people would go, well, it's kind of silly, you know. Yeah. They wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily buy into
1: um, some of the stories, you know. Yeah, um, I, I think that's right. I think that um, as we go along and read more and more books and experience life, and things happen to us. You know, like one of the biggest things in my life was having a kid. And um, it really kind of reoriented my fictions. That I very often have father and daughter characters uh, in my books. And they come from a place of lived experience. I mean, I've been through it. I know what the problems are. I know what the excitement is. I know what it feels like. Uh, and how vulnerable it can make you as a parent to have a, to have a child and send them out in the world. Um, so I think that we, as we go along, we can't help, you know, having experiences, and that cannot help but influence the writing. And I think it makes it richer. I think it really makes for a stronger book. When I read books that have been written by someone who's mm-hmm. published a bunch of books, I know that basically they're going to get the basics right uh, as, to make it a thriller, but I also know it's going to have a richer texture to it than someone at the age of 23 writing a book. It just, it's, 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 in, it's inevitable. Right, yeah.
0: It's a rarity that someone real young could put out something real seasoned, real... It's rare. It real, happens
1: real, once in a yeah. while, but it's rare.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, because you you don't understand until you've lived, and by the time you've lived, you wish you were young again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, right. <laughs>
1: that's
0: how it works. Now, if, if 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 someone was to pick up one book, if you were to tell someone that you could only give them one book to read, which would you suggest for them of your writing?
1: Uh, boy, that's a tough one, but, um, you know, I would say House on Fire uh, because – it's a, it's a Nick Heller book. You get to sort of meet my series character, sort of see him at his best. Um, but I also think of other books of mine, like Suspicion, which I really enjoyed. And one of my favorite of my books is Killer Instinct, um, which was at one point being developed as a movie no longer. Um, I think Killer Instinct sort of has a lot of what I think of as Joe Finder style. It's, you know, characters that feel real, a sense of humor, um, and a sense of stakes, and a lot lot of attention and suspense. So, I mean, those are the three that come to mind right away. Um, Okay. Now, do you like dealing uh,
0: with fans on social media? Are you interactive, or do you have a web page? How do you like people to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, I get I get a fair number of emails every week, and I um, I answer them all. Um, I consider it a privilege to have someone be so moved by something they read that they want to write to me and talk to, and ask me a question. Um, so, this when I was a kid, I fell in love with these books written by an author named Eleanor Cameron. And I sent her a letter, I loved it so much, I sent her a letter, care of her publisher, asking her all kinds of questions. And I got back a form letter. It was sort of a pre-printed form letter. But on the return address, on the envelope, was her, where she lived, was her actual address. So I sent her a letter right away saying, but you didn't answer my question. You no? Know? <laughs> and so... She and I, this woman, Eleanor Cameron and I, were in a kind of a pen pal relationship for three or four years. And it's, that is what made me realize that writing, that you can be a writer. That is a job. That is something that people actually do. And uh, I, I think that it also made me really value Hearing from readers, because I sort of think to myself, if Eleanor Cameron hadn't answered me, I wouldn't even be a writer now. So I answer everything and I spend time with each of my each of my emails. So the way people get in touch with me is is to go to my website, josephfender.com, or to email Joe at josephfender.com and throw questions at me. And I use you know, I, I spend time and answer them.
0: Well, great. And we'll have that up on our website as well. People can find you with one click. So who have you got to play Nick, Nick Heller? Is that going to be me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, when I started, it's funny. When I started writing the Nick Hellers, I, I thought that George Clooney would be perfect. Now I think George is too old. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got someone like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that Hollywood's been looking for you.
0: Yeah, well, I know they—they yes. they are calling me all the time, and I'm always Hello. saying no. I'm waiting for the right—it's yeah. got to be the right work.
1: <laughs> my, <laughs> my wife thinks that Bradley Cooper would be a perfect Nick Keller. Well, there, yeah,
0: I'm sure he's—he's—he's he's, he's
1: available. to there's me that. So, you know. well,
0: yeah, well, I'll fill in. I'll do a stunt double. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, it's, always, it's, it's a pleasure always uh, meeting people and talking to writers, um, good writers like, like
1: yourself. Um, again, our guest has been Joseph Finder. Thanks for being here. It was great to be here. And I didn't use any dirty words. Well, we'll fix that. <laughs> Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our
0: website and look for the Martino
1: movie reviews. To find out more about our show, guests or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs>
0: Have been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're
1: lying to me, I'll be back. This is a production of Something With Media.